Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 10th of January, and I have a bit of a special announcement to make, which is that, you know, for the past few episodes, I have been saying that the future of the show post-Tammy um, was a bit unclear and that we would be figuring it out as we went along and that uh, I pleaded for your patience, which many of you have have given. And um, I do have an announcement for the foreseeable future. We do have a co-host. It is Tyler Austin Harper. I'm not sure if you heard Tyler, but he was on the show a couple episodes ago. And I really enjoyed the conversation. As I said back then, this is somebody that I have had a lot of conversations with. I think we have a lot of I don't know. I, I just think there's a potential for really interesting conversations. And so I'm very excited about this. Uh, Tyler, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm absolutely stoked. That was the most professional audio guy that I, <laughs> radio <laughs> guy I'm going to be. That's very good. Um, um, now, you introduced yourself to the audience a couple, you know, when you came on the first time, but not everyone listens to every episode, um, yeah. even though the one that you were on actually did get quite a lot of listens. But just quickly, you want to introduce yourself? My name is Tyler Austin Harper. Uh, I teach uh, environmental studies at Bates College. That's sort of a misnomer. I mainly teach uh, environmental literature and film and sort of bad uh, animal eats people movies. Um, but I also write a lot about race and po- politics and uh, culture and so on. What is a bad animal eats people movie like Grizzly Man? Oh, Sharknado. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Sharknado. I teach, Sharknado. Yeah, I teach. I teach all of them. Sharknado, Global Swarming is a is a is a classic. Um, but yeah, no, the whole uh, genre of uh, animals eating people, uh, revenge, uh, environmental revenge uh, genre is definitely uh, one of my beats for sure. Did you? Uh, did you? Do you teach the day after tomorrow? Yeah, Have I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, what do you yeah, think yeah. about that movie? Because I saw that in the theater. It was interesting because there is no villain in that in that film, right? The film, yeah. it's just weather. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so totally. there's there's some teenagers in the crowd, and you know, I think that at some point they start cheering for the for the weather, and I just remember thinking about it as this really strange movie to watch because there was no. There's no one manipulating the weather, right? There is yeah. no, there is no like evil guy who was like, and now I will cause global warming by like depositing this recycling can in the wrong bin, and now the world yeah. is like, there's nothing of that. So yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think about that movie? I teach a course called Climate Fiction, and one of the things that's interesting to me, we watch that uh, film in that course, and one of the things that's always interesting to me about it is it's like one of the last, if not like the last of this sort of climate apocalypse movie in which there's like a professor or scientist who is the hero, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and like more recently, the like scientists are always like bumbling idiots who, you know, can't tell anyone what they need to know and don't help make the world any better, you know? So it's, yeah, it's like an interesting document of when I think we had like more faith in the sort of expert class to navigate climate change. And you have that, you know, the polar expeditionist scientist making his way up to, you know, frozen New York and stuff. And that kind of character. Yeah. Like the technocratic expert who solves climate change. That's, that's totally dropped out of our our imagination for sure. So I mean, it's like not a good movie, but it's interesting. I thought it was cool just because I like, this is not any sort of reflection how I feel about the city, but it is cool when, filmmakers imagine new york city being destroyed and yeah, like, yeah. that movie really fucks up new york in this really interesting way right like it yeah, basically hits it with every element and then at the end it's like 
you know, like a frozen tundra. I don't know. I thought it was kind of cool. There's like a weird book burning scene in it, which I always find like really bizarre where they're in the library and they're lighting all the books and the knowledge and stuff oh, on fire. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's like a weird, <laughs> super weird movie, but it's, yeah, it's really good. Well, what's the trend in Hollywood now for this environmental stuff? I think they're, you know, I often joke that both uh, sort of contemporary climate novels or as they call it like cli-fi or climate fiction, uh, whether novels or film, they've just become, uh, I'm not very bullish on the genre. I think it's become uh, sort of basically like the progressive version of like white uh, right wing sort of white survivalist fantasies. It's like the progressive version of the Turner Diaries, you know, where like uh, we're in this <laughs> climate hellscape and now we have like all of these sort of good people trying to survive and living in communes and fending off the hordes and so on, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I uh, mentioned this previously, but I had this bizarre experience um, a couple years ago at a dinner uh, with this sort of famous climate activist. And there were some younger people there. And one of them, you know, I forget what we're talking about, but one of them was like, you know, do you think, uh, do you think I should buy a gun? Because I'm really worried that like, everything's going to fall apart. And the Republicans are the only ones that have guns. And we're all going to be living on these like walled compounds and stuff. And, um, you know, the question was like, where did you get this from? And the answer was Octavia Butler's parable of the sower, you know, and I really think, <laughs> oh, wow. yeah, like, I don't know, I just think there's a way in which young people I talk to have this really, um, and not unreasonably so, but like a deeply dystopian view of our climate future, but in a way that's really untethered from any vision about like things we could do to mitigate it or any hope and sort of like expertise or the expert class. And it is really just this sort of doomsday bunker building kind of uh, kind of fantasy space. I don't know. I'm not sure that it uh, I'm not sure that it helps. I mean, they've even done some research trying to measure the sort of like the efficacy of climate fiction, right? Whether it sort of changes the hearts and minds of the readers. And uh, some of the research has found that actually it just like makes things worse because like a certain kind of reader will read a climate novel in which, you know, people are rushing in from Mexico because it's too hot there. And rather than read this as like, uh, you know, the peril of climate and we need to take climate change ser seriously and a humanitarian crisis and so on. They interpret it as like, uh, oh, no, the immigrants are going to come because of climate change. We need to like build the wall, you know. So yeah. even like there's a way in which um, readers don't always respond well to it, even progressive readers, the either um, like right wing people who read it, you know, read it as this like parable about immigration or whatever. And then left wing people who read it tend to tend to view it as like, well, there's no hope. So we might as well just, you know, do ketamine and hang out and wait for the uh wait for a tent we have so many apocalypse media now or so many shows and movies right yeah. um, but they all seem more about zombies and disease and whatever like i can't yeah, remember the last one that was about yeah. climate has there been like a big one other than um i mean that one's about an asteroid don't look up right but it's also like about climate change as an allegory but i don't know it's not like yeah there was a there, there was a recent chris pratt one from a few years back i should remember the name because i wrote about it but it's uh like these people come from the future to warn about like aliens are arriving and humans need to prepare for the arrival of aliens and then by the end of the movie of course you know the aliens arrive but it emerges that they've actually been like thawed from the you know the arctic or some shit like they've been laying in wait and it's all global warming etc but yeah i mean i think there's been a turn away from it um but i think the point you make about sort of how do you make climate change sexy is a real problem there's this uh critic rob nixon who wrote a book about 10 years ago now called slow violence and his argument was the problem with climate change is that it's like violence but slow so it's not like a bank robbery or a shooting or whatever where it has this right. sort of immediate like hollywood-esque vibe to it um and so like how do you tell a compelling 
media story about, you know, sand very slowly being washed away from the beach, even if erosion might have really profound impacts on coastal communities or whatever, it's really hard to make that sexy, you know. Let's move on to something that is not hard to sell, right, which is this Harvard story. And I want to talk about it. We talked about it a little bit the last time you were here, but since then you wrote an article in The Atlantic that, you know, Articles don't, I was talking about my friend Willie about this, but like articles don't really go viral anymore because people don't use Twitter in the same way. But yours kind of did, you know, like it it seemed like it was picked up and discussed quite a bit. And um, that is not, you know, a value statement on the article. I just think that maybe a lot of people were able to see it. And can you, do you want to just summarize what your argument was there just real quick so that we can get started here on it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, um, has been sort of enmeshed over the last about five weeks in a plagiarism scandal. Um, The first allegations came from Chris Rufo, and they were uh, pretty minor. I think those came on December 10th. One day later, um, a a reporter with the Free Beacon, which is sort of a conservative skewing outlet, um, published a much more sort of exhaustive list of other allegations of plagiarism. And they were quite bad. A few of them were paragraphs duplicated verbatim without attribution. Um, And the sort of progressive response to it, uh, particularly in academic circles, struck me as really insane. I mean, the instances were... um, they were not ideas, and that matters, right? I mean, the worst kind of plagiarism is stealing other people's sort of ideas, um, but they were stolen language. And the academic response uh, for many on the left was largely to say, well, it's not a big deal, or it's not even plagiarism, right? There were this all these sort of Orwellian phrases that got trotted out, like duplicative language and sort of technical misattribution errors is my favorite. Um, and part of what I was trying to say is that, uh, and, you know, it just snowballed and got worse and worse, and more and more allegations came out until she finally resigned. Um, And I think academia really was left with a bunch of egg on its face. And the case I was trying to make is that I think um, what Rufo wanted all along and what the right wing people wanted all along was not um, Claudine Gay out. I mean, I think they wanted her out. But I think what they really wanted is to expose us all um, as sort of progressive hypocrites who are political actors who will look the other way when it's our team and who, who don't have real academic standards. And, um, you know, I don't think that's true of the vast majority of academics. I think most people I talked to privately were horrified. But there were a lot of public voices, a lot of well-known academics who were trying to convince us all that two plus two equals five and this wasn't plagiarism. And yeah, so it, um, I, I think it's a real cultural crisis in academia. I think it exposed, uh, exposed a real cultural crisis and I'm not sure um, where we go from here. Uh, and, you know, it's just doubly frustrating. And so far as the right response from either Harvard or from the academic community at large wasn't very hard, right? It would have been easy to say, yes, this is plagiarism. This isn't great. She will issue corrections and an apology. Um, You know, it doesn't impact the the quality of the work, right? This was just writing that had been taken inappropriately um, and we're going to move on. And I think she could have, and I've heard from some people at Harvard who told me that if there had been an apology, the consensus is she would have, would still be president at Harvard, you know? Um, And it would have been really easy to just uh, apologize, issue a correction and move forward, but that's not what happened, you know? Um, So it's become a mess. The right is trying to gin up a plagiarism witch hunt, which some on the left and media outlets are trying to answer. And it's, yeah, it's ugly. Okay, so this is your world, it's not mine, right? Um, And on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is really bad, 
How bad is was the plagiarism? I would say like a six. Um, a six I mean, okay. it's she didn't take ideas, um, and that matters. Um, but I'm deeply resistant to this notion. First of all, that everyone does this. Like that was one of the claims I saw a number of academics making that if you looked at anyone's academic record, you would find these. And I find that to be simply untrue and unpersuasive. Um, But, you know, writing is work and you just can't take it. And this wasn't a few five or six sentences in a row or a turn of phrase that she took, but, you know, whole paragraphs. Um, So I would say, you know, it's somewhere around a six. I don't think it should have cost her tenure, which it didn't. Um, And I think you could have made a case to, to keep her if she would have apologized and said, you know, I was under a lot of pressure and working very quickly as a graduate student and later as a junior faculty member. I want to talk about this uh, idea then about teams, right? Because that's, I agree with your assessment about what Chris Rufo and them want. It's the same thing that they wanted when they went after critical race theory in schools, (laughs) right? What are we going to expose with all the CRT in schools thing, right? And what I thought was exposed was that Basically, people went into full denialist mode, right? They said, Mm -hmm. there's no critical race theory in schools. There's no critical race theory in schools. And in some ways, that is true. There is no, most people do not learn about Derek Bell or like, you know, um, or or critical race theory, Kimberly Crenshaw. They're not learning about a legal doctrine in schools. But, you know, there, it is true that, uh, you know, Gloria Ladson Billings was, started the original CRT, which is like culturally relevant teaching. And Mm -hmm. that when culturally relevant teaching, which is a very, very simple idea that I think that most people would agree with, right? Which is that if you're teaching kids in uh, the inner city, or if you're teaching kids in rural areas, that the examples that you use to teach them, regardless of what that context would be, should be relevant to whatever cultural context that they're in, right? That's it. Culturally relevant teaching then at some point does actually get sort of picked up by a lot of people who have read a lot of critical race theory, right? And then it becomes a mutated version of culturally relevant teaching. And then that is the thing that you see with Tima Oaken and all this stuff about like, you know, is math um, or punctuality white supremacist. If you read those papers, like they all cite critical race theory type of stuff, right? And so... My thing with that was always like, okay, I don't really think that there's no CRT in schools. However, I wish what people would do instead of denying that this happens or downplaying the idea that this matters, like people would be like, Timo Okun, like it's just a slide in a presentation. I think I at some point even said this and then I thought about it a little bit more. But then I was like, oh, actually, no, this is really ubiquitous in a lot of school systems, like this type totally. of thing. Like here in Berkeley, for example, you can say it's good or bad. And Berkeley obviously is an extreme example. But like we have like a reparations task force within the school system. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> every everything is everything is infused with this thing. And it's crazy to say it's not, you know, like, yeah, yeah. come on, like these parents see this stuff. It's in front of their eyes. And when they're told that it's not real, then they get mad and they wonder if there is a conspiracy, right? Like they wonder, yeah. oh, wait, maybe maybe they are, because I can see this thing with my eyes and they're telling me it's not real. Why are they lying to me, right? 100%. And so I found that to be a really counterproductive thing. And I think Rufo is very good at drumming that up. Yeah. He's very good at pointing out these inconsistencies within progressives where the and hoping that the progressives kind of default to a denialist standpoint 
And that's basically what happened here too, right? Like you quote this guy at Harvard Law, Charles Freed, he told the Times, quote, it's part of this extreme right wing attack on elite institutions. If it came from some other quarter, I might be granting it some credence, but not from these people, right? That's a great quote to include because it basically (laughs) points out exactly what Chris Rufo wants to say, which is that all this is just ideological. It's all about what team you're on. There's no truth, right? Yeah, yeah. And that... And then his extension of that is that the thing driving this untruth in all these places is CRT slash DEI, I guess he calls it now, right? It's moved on from critical race theory, which I always thought was too abstract to be a real idea. And now it's DEI, which is something that many, many people encounter in their daily work lives now. And so they can actually have a context to it. So, yeah, I don't know. This is my long winded way of saying, like, I do think your prescription there was correct. No, I think you're totally right. I mean, I think, too, uh, Rufo definitely has a Machiavellian streak, but part of my intense frustration with um, the left or the progressives, more precisely, is inability to navigate these kind of culture war issues is that he's just laying out rakes and we're choosing to step on them. You know, like it would have, you know, it would be very easy to say, yes, there's critical race theory in schools and sometimes it's excessive, but it's not the caricature that is portrayed by the right. Or yes, there's some plagiarism here. It's not great. It's minor, but you know, we're going to call it out. We're going to fix it and we're going to move on. Um, but again, at, at every available opportunity, people seem to uh, seem to step on the rake and sort of prove his, his point. When he calls out ahead of time what he's trying to do. I think it's trying to get to signal to other people in conservative media, like what the game plan is. But then at the same time, I mean, I also think it just serves to when invariably we do step on those rakes to make us look even dumber and worse, right? Right, right, right. Look, I'm going to do this stuff. And then we fall for it every time. I wrote recently about uh, identity politics and wokeness in the humanities. And you'll talk to some faculty members or academics who are like, what do you mean the humanities are more woke? We still teach Shakespeare or whatever. And it's like, well, the way we teach Shakespeare is really different from 20 years ago. And everyone can see that, right? And, you know, um, if you just say it's, the English department is the same as it was in 1980, uh, everyone can see that's a lie. Everyone can, you know, everyone's in a workplace where there's now DEI task forces that didn't exist five years ago. We can all see that things are changing and to pretend that this is just the same old or it's just HR or it's just like it always was. um, Yeah, I do think it like is radicalizing for a certain kind of person because they feel like they're being lied to in this particularly sort of Orwellian fashion. My thing has always been you should defend these things instead of dismissing that they aren't there. And if you can't (laughs) defend them, then you should say that they're bad, right? Yep. Tima Oaken, for example, the person who said that punctuality is white supremacist, instead of saying she's not being, her materials are not being used in anything, right? And basically, that's not true, right? Mm -hmm. Just defend it. Right. And if you don't want to defend it, then say it's bad. I don't understand what the problem is. Um, You can say that you can say something very reasonable, like the attempt to dismantle white supremacy within school systems and the educational system is still important, even if there are some excesses that do get distributed in some sorts of ways. And we don't support those types of excesses. But we also don't think that that should be used to destroy the entire movement of it. And some people do say that. Right. But. Um, I do think that it takes at least that level of honesty or intellectual honesty to get there. Uh, The second thing I wanted to 
sort of bring it out with, or a comparison point to you that I wanted to bring up was that it reminded me a bit about some of the controversy that happened around the 1619 project, right? It followed a similar tact, which is that there was a critique that was given, right? There was a question that was put up, I think, in pretty good faith compared to what Chris Rufo was doing oh, right? much, about yeah. the legitimacy of some of the claims within the opening essay and the way in which the New York Times Magazine was positioning the 1619 Project. And that the big fight around that turned into just being basically you pick a side, right? And if you believe in, if you have any quibbles at all with the 1619 Project, then you're on the side of the 1776 Project and you're on the side of Trump and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, the people that it was being leveled against were, it was very interesting because it wasn't, Chris Rufo, it was like Gordon Wood, right? It was Marxist historians yeah, yeah. at Brown, right? I don't know. <laughs> is Gordon Wood still at Brown? I know he was at Brown for a long time. No. Um, but, uh, you know, like that, that, that always sat strangely with me because I was like, well, why don't we, def- why don't we just defend the idea, right? Like, why are yeah. we saying if it's coming from these people, it must be wrong. And then, with the added incentive and the added strangeness that the thing that you're defending is also a giant institution that has its own problems, right? Like the New York Times or Harvard University. Like why, why would we assume that they're the good guys? One of my deep frustrations as somebody on the sort of further end of the left is the way in which these incidents tend to leave progressive people defending these legacy media institutions or these extremely wealthy universities that are by definition pretty exploitative, right? And that are certainly not in any grand uh, sense on the side of combating inequality or anything like that. Um, But they end up defending them because they think somebody, you know, if someone worse is assaulting them, then they they must be worth worth defending. I mean, I was talking to um, off the record, this, uh, a guy who I'll say works in the sort of arts world, broadly speaking, a black guy. And he was telling me that, you know, one of the huge problems in the art world, if you're a black artist, is that um, it's really impossible to uh, critique black art without immediately falling into, you know, being accused of sort of um, punching left or punching black or or not sort of championing black excellence or whatever. He's like, this has been really bad because there's a lot of really bad artwork that comes out and everyone knows it's bad, but no one wants to say like, you know, this, this isn't great actually. And I think there's something analogous here to the 1619 Project or to Claudia Gay, right? Where there is the sense that, um, well, you know, we have to pretend that Claudia Gay, or Claudine Gay, excuse me, who had a really paltry academic record, is this exemplar of black excellence or whatever. And, and we can't criticize her, even though, I mean, she was a pretty mediocre academic to begin with, you know, and there was this article in Forbes that came out recently that said something to that effect that was like, um, Claudine Gay is proof that sort of uh, will always come for black excellence or something like that, you know? Right. And the 1619 Project, I think, is analogous, you know, where it's seen as this really important project. And even if people want to quibble with some small piece of it, um, we can't cast any aspersions whatsoever because to to launch any kind of critique, however minor, is to or to accept any kind of critique is to somehow give credence to the right and to fascists and so on and so forth. Um, and it just makes us seem really unreasonable, I think. Uh, and it's yeah, it's not it's not good for discourse. I don't know. And it leads us in weird places like defending Yale and Harvard and so on. Nick Confessor wrote a piece in the New York Times recently that argued that this was the beginning of a new movement, that they can see the caving of this huge institution or this very famous institution and think, 
the game is about to change. What do you think about that? I don't think it's a harbinger of things to come in terms of um, a new playbook for the right. I do think we are in an interesting time in terms of um, plagiarism witch hunts, right? Um, and so right. what's what this is all going to hinge on is, you know, how many folks are actually plagiarizing? And in the humanities, it's pretty interesting. Um, across the board, all the humanities folks I've talked to have been like, that was obviously plagiarism. Like, that. that's crazy. And the social science people are a little more like, oh, well, sometimes you lift technical language, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to me to see as Bill Ackman and all these people and Chris Rufo are funding these sort of plagiarism witch hunts, um, where the skeletons are buried. And I, I kind of, if there are skeletons, and I'm, I'm suspicious that the plagiarism thing is nearly as widespread as Rufo and the right seems to think it is. Um, but if there are skeletons, I have a sense that they're probably going to be in the social sciences and sciences, which is going to be interesting given the way the humanities have sort of been impugned and imperiled in the last uh, couple of years. <laughs> You're not worried that every single woke professor who tweets, right, uh, is then going to have some little group of keyboard warriors funded by, I don't know, what a pick a right-wing think tank um, right. who are going to be checking all of their all of their dissertation and everything like that and then bringing them up like we're going to have this almost McCarthyist show court in which like every you know and the idea we're going to see Chris Rufo doing multiple victory laps and saying like this is how you dismantle DEI and wokeness at the university brick by brick right right yeah. like I can sort of see that happening like you're not yeah. worried about that you know, I think, no, I mean, at least not immediately. I think um, one of the things that this has made clear, and particularly the Bill Ackman situation with his, his wife getting exposed for plagiarism, is that um, tit for tat is very possible. Um, and, you know, I guess I just wonder, it is not as though the only plagiarists are people on the left, right? Um, I mean, there's a rich history of Republican politicians stealing campaign speeches and everything under the sun. So, you know, I, I think it really depends. I think AI software, um, plagiarism detection stuff is going to make everything much easier. Um, but I guess I feel like I don't have enough information to know. My sense of these universities is that there is a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion that is much stronger than people might imagine. And yeah. that uh, if this was a sort of tenuous grasp that this ideology had had on people on, and most of the faculty were just going along with it because they had to, um, that would be one thing. I think that there are definitely professors who feel that way, right? But I don't think that they are, that it's everybody. And my general sense of this is that, look, you build out a huge administration, administrative bureaucratic system within all these universities for a reason because mm -hmm. it is it can withstand storms and it can adapt and if you really think that they're going to put make steve pinker the president of harvard now because they got rid of plotting gay like come on right like that's not happening they're gonna find somebody exactly like claudine gay right um yeah. And uh, what that is, is probably somebody who, like Claudine Gay, as you pointed out, went to all the best schools, right? Um, and has the same background as everybody else at Harvard, Shady basically. Shady cement monopoly background, yeah. 
Right. And that who can claim some sort of identity, right, that will make it a triumphant moment for Harvard and will make Harvard look good. But in reality, if you look at any type of class or educational background, that the person is very similar to everyone at Harvard. Um, And that that person will commit to DEI. Like, you know, if you need any proof of this, then it's like Harvard just spent seven years basically defending discriminating against Asian students. (laughs) (laughs) Like you're not going to change it, right? They're not going to change their behavior. They're not going to change anything about it. Um, And I think that it, look, I think that having diverse campuses is good, right? And so for me, it's like, I'm happy that that sort of bulwark exists. But I also think that like it, that the reason why it exists is because this type of stuff is pretty strong. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of professors and I live in a state where affirmative action has been illegal for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. And the idea that there is no consideration given to an applicant's race or anything like that is ridiculous. Right. Of course there is. Yeah, and yeah. so they'll just adjust in the same way that they adjusted here in California. Like there's, you cannot find, like you can find the most red, well, not the most, but you can find some of the most red pilled people on Berkeley's campus. And you can say, well, do you think this school should all be white and Asian? Every single one of them will be like, no, we need to have actually a more representative campus here. Like all yeah, of them yeah. will say that. <laughs> yeah. So like, it's like Chris Rivo's vision of the world, I think is still very far away. Um, and I think that's a good thing, but it just kind of makes us look silly a lot. Like, that's the part that annoys me. If you sit in a faculty meeting, there are 10% uh, sort of vocal partisans um, on each side of the DEI stuff, right? Like 10% of people will be loud, enthusiastic DEI boosters. The other 10% are sort of loud DEI skeptics. Um, and it's often really hard to tell where that middle 80% is. And I think there are probably somewhere similar to where you and I are that think diversity is really good, but then also some of these things can be pretty embarrassing or sometimes just simply silly, you know? Uh, but academia is a really, it's like a battleship. It moves very slowly. Um, it's not prey to the same fads and market trends and uh that i think the media landscape is that i think sort of corporations are um i think it's pretty like you said firmly entrenched i'm not sure how exactly um how quickly any of this stuff particularly at private universities is gonna gonna change at all bill ackman who has been at the center of this the whole time just because he's been sort of I don't know what his deal is. If I had $4 billion or something like this, I think I might act similarly. I was talking to my friend about it this morning who works <laughs> in a hedge fund and he's not that rich yet. Yeah. But I was like, I was like, if you get that rich, like, what are you going to, are you going to, would you do what Bill Ackman's doing and just kind of go crazy? He was like, absolutely. <laughs> you know I, mean? like, I, would, I would just tweet all day long because who cares? You know, and I, yeah, I yeah. try and think that I wouldn't like that. I would be doing something more useful with my time, no, but I probably yeah. wouldn't. I'd probably just be a more unhinged version of myself online right now. Absolutely. But um, he, uh, you know, the business insider put out this story about his wife, right? Who was uh, this uh, academic named Neri Oxman and Neri Oxman, I don't know, has like some affiliation or I think graduated from MIT and was affiliated with the MIT Media Lab. What was the difference? Was there much difference between what Neri Oxman did and what Claudine Gay did? I mean, not especially, no. Some of the paragraphs, I mean, there's like a snobbishness factor, right? Like some of the paragraphs were lifted from Wikipedia. So I think that added like a certain sort of clownishness to the whole thing um, that, you know, an academic is lifting uh, phrasing from Wikipedia. But they're pretty similar. I mean, 
honestly, the big difference I see is in the response. Um, and Bill Ackman is, is, is being crazy, obviously, as he's, as he's want to do. But um, I think Oxman pretty quickly said, you know, I'll have to look at this. I'll issue corrections, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, you know, I don't think anyone is coming out of this thing looking good. But no, the, I mean, the cases are honestly pretty similar, uh, even a similar amount. I think there was like 35 right. they found with Oxman, Ox, uh, Oxman versus the 40-ish with Claudine Gay. A similar style of plagiarism. My understanding is um, language, not ideas. Um, and I mean, part of what I think this all speaks to, and, and John McWhorter had a good op-ed, I thought, um, mid-January about Claudine Gay, and he alluded to this, but I think part of what this speaks to is sort of the um, the publish or perish culture that persists in elite academia in particular, where there's a huge pressure to pump out volume of scholarship, much of which is not going to be read at all by anybody, you know, or that's going to be read by five people. And I don't mean to suggest that the litmus test of the value of scholarship should necessarily be how many people read it, um, but I think this kind of plagiarism we're seeing that is not ideas, but is language is kind of a function of that, right? Where there's this pressure to churn out a bunch of stuff. Nobody's going to read it anyway, or five people are right. um, just so they can cite it in a footnote. So who cares, you know? Um, and so I think that's like part of this whole story that shouldn't be lost. You know, there's a lot of people, look, there are a lot of academics who love teaching and they don't especially, or they like the lifestyle of being a professor. They like research, but it's not their like great life's passion, you know? Um, and I'm not saying that's Oxman or, or Claudine Gay. Um, but, you know, I do think um, there are a ton of people publishing work that no one's going to read that doesn't actually matter, but our system incentivizes them to publish it because they need it for promotion. They have to publish it. Yeah. They have right. to publish it. Right. And so it's this kind of, I mean, you know, it's the sort of pinnacle of this kind of bullshit jobs that David Graeber talked about, right? These people who really don't care, right. but have to churn it out. And yeah, so I don't know. I think that's part of this whole thing. Uh, but yeah, the cases do seem similar to me. Um, I think the difference is mainly, you know, the response and the sort of politics. Yeah, it's interesting. I have only learned about this recently because of an article I'm writing. But, you know, it seems like if you want to be seriously considered for a tenure position at one of these prestigious universities, especially if you want to get to the heights that Neri Oxman or, mm -hmm. um, or, or Claudine Gay got to where you're a famous academic, right? Yeah. Um, that you need a certain background of scholarship or else you're just not going to be taken seriously in the same way. But that the quality of what that is actually doesn't matter, right? That yeah, it yeah. just needs to be that you have a book, right? And people, I just heard much in my reporting in the past six months, like, oh, this person had a book and this person didn't. And that's why we had to make this hiring decision, right? Or like yeah, this dude. person, um, oh, they just had to wait until their book came out. And so if I was in that position where I wanted was a wildly ambitious person and what I wanted was not the scholarship really, um, but what I wanted was the sort of position, right? The sort of yeah, yeah. exalted position to be Indiana Jones or like the derivative of Indiana Jones, yeah, yeah. right? I, to be interviewed on MSNBC or to, you know, have 100,000 Twitter followers and do threads where people are like, wow, amazing context. You just put a bunch of screenshots of whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that that is a very, that sort of, for some people, that's why they get into the academy, or at least once they get into the academy, they see that pay, that yep. sort of 
incentive for them. And then for those people, I can actually see why the book would feel annoying to write and that you would do it in this sloppy way, right? Now, that doesn't mean that there is malice intended or that there, I don't think that yeah, Mary yeah. Oxman or Claudine Gay were purposefully doing this, totally agree. Um, yeah. plagiarizing. They probably were just in a rush because they didn't want to write the books and they're just copy and pasting their stuff in there, right? And so um, I don't know. I guess for me, at least, that means it makes it does seem like the more exalted the professor in a lot of ways the more this you're gonna find and then there's some like angry completely ignored scholar sitting in the corner of some terrible building and like i don't know like uh a satellite north north hampton yeah yeah, north hampton massachusetts right and um and everything they've done is perfect and they're like you know because all what they actually cared about was scholarship right so um I don't know. I, 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 I found it all very weird because um, at some level, I think that the, I do think that, look, Claudine Gay plagiarized and, you know, if that's yeah. the standard, then that's the standard. But I also just find it so interesting that, like, it, it's very hard to ascribe that this was, like, intentional, right? It's just yeah. a mistake they made that apparently within your world is totally fatal. I think the conversation we should have had is that... Yes, this was plagiarism. We need a better standard for evaluating different sorts of plagiarism and how bad they are, right? There's stealing ideas from somebody, which is knowingly, which is really bad, right? And then there's what Claudine Gay or Oxman did, um, which are not good, and I don't think they should be condoned, but it's pretty obvious to me that their reputation shouldn't be ruined for that, or they shouldn't lose their jobs, or that they shouldn't be viewed substantially differently within their fields. And so this just seemed like this was an opportunity to talk about gradients of plagiarism. Should it be a death blow in every case, right? Um, And how do we exercise some compassion and some ability to like adjudicate these different different gradations of of academic integrity? and that's not at all what happened, right? And I think that would have been the move, right? I think Harvard should have said, like, look, this is actually not that big of a deal, but our students are held to a much higher standard. And what right. this has made us realize is that it would be easy to do this kind of thing without ill will, rushing, copying and pasting, thinking you're going to go back and fill in quotations right. later and you forget. Right, 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 right. Um, and so we're going to reevaluate our student plagiarism policy. And rather than being separated from the university for six months, students are going to have to do ABC or whatever. This is something I thought about a lot when I was at the Times, which was that I would write some of these pieces and they would be in favor of something like standardized testing or it would be <laughs> questions about affirmative action. And there was always this charge that was leveled against me, which was that even though people did believe that I, you know, believe in universal health care and redistribution <laughs> of very left economically that I was aiding the right by mm-hmm. making these arguments and that I shouldn't make the arguments. Now, I always found that ridiculous, but it was always from an individualistic standpoint, which was basically, don't fucking tell me what to do. You know, if I think <laughs> something is true, yeah. then I'm just going to say that it's true. And actually, you guys lying about it all the time is not that helpful. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, I find myself questioning whether or not that's right. <laughs> you know, like, um, I don't know, like you have written these pieces recently and they've gotten a ton of attention, right? Um, And I think that maybe some, like, maybe this isn't true, but like, is there a part of you that feels right now like a little bit uncomfortable about some of the people who might be saying, hey, this was a great, you know, thing? Like, because these are, I don't think a lot of those people are people that you 
would align yourself with before all this, right? It's something I think about constantly. And I think I come down on, um, you know, I definitely have people and usually not people like on the left or Marxist, but like sort of progressives who will say, oh, well, you know, you're just helping Chris Rufo by saying that Claudine Gay plagiarized or that, you know, maybe the humanities could think about their curriculum in different ways and be less focused on identity politics or whatever. Um, and so there is this kind of like never punch left thing, you know, and I, I just tend to think that um, we the culture war is not between the sort of fringes. It is for the imagination of the public um, and for the support of the public. And right now, I think a lot of people on the left look nuts. And I think when we when we can't make it clear that we can clean up our own house and when we can't make it clear that we're you know, we actually do have standards for things and that we think you know, discrimination against Asians at Harvard is bad, or we think plagiarism is bad, or that we think, yeah, sometimes this stuff gets excessive. Um, I think we just lend further credence to the idea that we're insane. Um, there's a historian at UChicago who wrote a piece about um, after October 7th uh, about how, you know, we can't call it a terrorist attack and we shouldn't, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, you didn't say that precisely, but basically that we shouldn't grieve in public for the, the Israeli victims of October 7th because it will just, you know, tears always get converted into sort of grease for the war machine or what have you. Right. Um, and my point of view, and that's a, a similar move I think we see not just in sort of Israel-Palestine, but across the board in different culture war issues that, you know, we can't ever admit when something's a problem um, because it just gives support to the other side. And I think the flip side of that is that silence is also can be politicized in a different way. Like if we don't speak up when there's the president of Harvard is plagiarizing or when we don't speak up when, you know, there are, you know, there's a really violent attack on civilians and, and children and so on, then I think you know, even as I support Palestine and even as I support conservatives getting their meddling hands out of universities, I do think we run the risk of um, appearing insane to the broader public and appearing like extremists when I don't think the vast majority of us are. So I don't know. I, I get the same accusation that uh, you've you mentioned getting a lot. And I, I really think um, I think it, it, speaking up matters when it, it feels right to speak up. And at the same time, too, I think the sentiment that critique comes from is really nihilistic and seems to believe that's that how i feel yeah yeah, yeah it's it, like you can't it, persuade anyone you know and i think it that's also ridiculous. is like a it's like this abstract cut it's a rube goldberg machine that has to be lined up so perfectly for it to matter right like yeah, basically yeah. every single thing that you say has to have this exact effect or this radicalizing yeah. effect and then it'll lead to the end of the world. I mean, it is essentially what we used to do in debate all the time, right? Like that's sort of the structure of policy <laughs> yeah, debate, yeah. which is just that you say, if if uh, you pass this bill that like, you know, does more oversight in chicken farms, then Bill Clinton will lose <laughs> the election. And then we're going to have a climate disaster and a resource <laughs> war, and we're going to have a nuclear war, right? Like that was yeah, the yeah. argument. And like, it was a ridiculous argument, but it was interesting because you start to understand how ideas line up and can lead to convincing yeah, yeah. arguments at the end, as long as you catastrophize everything. Um, yeah, absolutely. And in this case, it's like, I'm sorry, I don't feel the need to catastrophize thinking that the president of Harvard plagiarized. Yeah, totally. you know? yeah, yeah. Like, I don't, totally. I don't see the plagiarism. I don't see the... I don't, Chris Rufo is very, very good at annoying the elite media, right? And sort yeah, of yeah. the academy. He's 
he ran Ron DeSantis's campaign into the fucking ground. You know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. let's not 100%. give this guy, let's not give this guy more credit than he was. Here you have a guy who was like, I always thought he was a bit of like, you know, like not personable or whatever, right? But yeah. um, he was the guy that people were lining up to give money Behind, to, yeah. and he was a guy who was anointed to be the one guy who could challenge Trump. He was a he had a lot of juice after the pandemic because of the way that he handled amongst conservatives of the yeah, way yeah, that yeah. he he did handled sure. the and it seemed like he could really fight right like it seemed like like he could do the things that he wanted and then he became obsessed with wokeness at schools he became obsessed with DEI and then his entire campaign crater so let's not give Chris Rufo the credit right like the that's the nihilistic part of it to me which is that if we break rank just a little bit. Right. That yeah, yeah. Chris Rufo will win. And I'm just like, well, Chris Rufo had every win that he could possibly have. He was credited with why Glenn Youngkin won Virginia. Right. It became the yeah, yeah. Like, it was all because of Chris Rufo and DEI and and uh, not oh, CRT in schools. And, you know, Loudoun County was very concerned, concerned about it. Like this, this whole narrative comes out of it. Right. And there's some truth to that narrative. Sure. But like. He was given the biggest stage possible and he flopped and that's why he's going back to his old stuff. And so let's not pretend like the other stuff didn't happen. And I do agree with it. It's just like it's it's nihilistic and it's also just like this crazy vision of the world in which we matter much more than we do. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's narcissistic at its core. No. And I think it it relies on this idea that. people in the center or in the middle or like you know further to the right or whatever than i am can't be persuaded in any way which i also think is nihilistic i mean i wrote a thing on richard hanania in his book that came out i don't know sometime this summer and a lot of people on the left were like you shouldn't give him a platform by talking about his book in the atlantic or whatever um and what i said about his book was that it had lots of like crazy racist white supremacist iq shit in it I got so many emails from conservative readers of Hanania that were like, I didn't realize that this was all scattered throughout his Substack, And now once you pointed it out, I see it everywhere and I'm not reading it anymore. You know, right. and, and the grand scheme of things that probably didn't move the needle that much. But I, I, I think people can be persuaded and it just feels really fatalistic to assume that breaking ranks is pointless because there's nobody an iota to the right of you that could possibly be brought on board or persuaded or change their minds about anything, you know, and that just doesn't seem to me to be true, but right. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just, that's why I think I ended up having an individualistic sense of it, which was just don't tell me what to do because I also just don't think that like my output, regardless of this, scale at which it it's at and you know i've tried to be more honest about it because i think that when you go through a career as a journalist or as like a, somebody who's a mild 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 public figure mm-hmm. that a lot of the first years are spent in full denialism about like what you where you're at right you just like you just say i have no influence over anything who cares it's just me writing my blogs yeah that's yeah. not true when you're like at the new york times and your face is on the front page twice a week under yeah, the yeah. opinion section that's not true but at the same time, I think that sort of believing that one person within that institution has that much of an influence is also kind of delusional, you know? Totally. Yeah, um, yeah. And that what people really want to do when they read that stuff is just be entertained. And you should think about it from an entertainment standpoint, right? Yeah, because for sure. They're reading that. But in terms of onboarding or platforming ideas or whatever, like, you know, like, I don't know. I just find it to be. 
an odd way to think about it. And the reason why I think it exists is because you can use that to shut down anything you don't like because you can yeah, say yeah, that yeah, it's going to lead to fascism. All right. Last thing I want to talk about is at the end of every episode, I think, well, as long as you are the co-host here, is that I think we should talk about books. There was an op-ed in the Times today that was uh, that came out this morning, and it was about true crime. And the title is very provocative. It's My Sister Was Murdered 30 Years Ago. True Crime Repackages Our Pain as Entertainment. And it is by Annie Nickel, who is a writer and activist. And, you know, it's a harrowing story. I mean, this is Polly Class's sister, right? And yeah. for the readers who don't know, Polly Class was like the biggest abduct. She was abducted out of her... Um, bedroom and it turns out that her little sister was in that room right and so this is somebody who's deeply affected by this very very famous abduction murder case um and the argument that she is making and she's making actually quite a lot of arguments in it but she's talking about this explosion of true crime podcasts right um and true crime literature true crime everything right now and it is true that podcasting has been taken over basically by true crime stuff and her argument many different arguments, but I think at the beginning, she is basically arguing that making crime so salacious, right, actually makes it seem more present than it is, right? By These are pretty standard arguments, but I think they tend to be true. Uh, the best, the most popular true crime, this is just a fact, is when white women are murdered, yeah. right? Um, and that by focusing so much on white women being murdered that you sort of discount or you just i don't even know what the right word is but like you you are basically making white women the the face of the crime victim violent crime yeah. victim when in fact that that's not true right that yeah. um uh and that uh and then in the end it's basically making this argument that like it is really the mania around this has harmed victims families who are just trying to either get on with their lives or Heal. figure it out yeah. in their way when every cold case is dug up right when every salacious murder is revisited by 15 different people who are competing to make a podcast about it then you do get a lot of calls right um yeah, yeah. you do get a lot of emails and those emails are not very polite even if the first one is right um yeah, yeah. and that they're basically just trying to extract out of you that's all it is it's just extraction journalism of that type is just fucking pure extraction they don't give a shit about the person right like yeah, it's yeah. just like what can i get out of you oh is this person going to say the thing i exactly want them to say are they going to give me the little bit that i can put in the promo that makes it seem like the other fucking podcast about this shit you know um and it's just over and over and over again i don't know what would what, you think about this i, I said yeah I no no, I mean, I thought it was awesome. It just seems like so much of our, and this is all part of the culture war, but I, I feel like so much of our imagination has taken up the sort of the specter of crime and violent crime, you know? And I do think um, this is one of those arguments that I think a certain kind of person would dismiss as woke, but that I think is totally correct, right? I think the true crime fixation has absolutely made it such that when people think about um, sort of violent crime or serial killing or murder, uh, what they imagine is, um, you know, nice white girls in the suburbs or nice white women who are abducted and killed, right? And they don't, they don't think about, you know, the homeless people that are murdered by serial killers every year. And they don't think about the fact that the majority of homicide victims are, are of color and so on, or at least uh, proportionally. Um, and so I, I think that's totally correct. And I really do think media and the podcast world exercises a, um, 
a real stranglehold over how we think about crime, how we think about who crime's victims are, um, and also how we think about fear, including our own fear. You know, um, I, I, I talk to any number of people who, uh, you know, I live in Maine in the middle of nowhere. And I think, uh, <laughs> you know, the number of people uh, sort of transplants to Maine who lock their doors out of fear of sort of uh, serial killers emerging from the woods is is, is pretty high. Um, and I think the corollary that I often think about is, uh, you know, as a black dude is, is police killings of unarmed black men, right? I mean, I talk to a lot of black friends who, when they're in the car, this exercises a lot of their thought, even though there are like 20 unarmed black men killed every year by the cops. And that's a lot. Um, but that pales in proportion to the number who are um, hassled, who, you know, that's that's not the primary face or the primary problem of racist policing in this country. And yet um, the media makes it seem like that is, you know, racist cops killing black people is the number one problem that, you know, black men face in, in America when it's very much not. Um, and so I think, you know, this politics of fear has become really bipartisan in a certain way. I think you have this sort of wine mom, suburban woman who soaks up podcasts about, um, you know, uh, people getting abducted. And, and I think on the opposite end, you have, uh, you know, other folks who are progressive that, you know, worry about instances that are likewise um, extraordinarily unlikely. And in both cases, what it does is distract from the people who are actually most likely to be victims of crime and violence in the U.S. Um, so I thought it was great. And I think, you know, the point about the sort of uh, trauma vampiring that that happens um, in the media in particular is, is really salient um, because, you know, I think it's clear to anyone who's paying attention that most of the true crime podcasts are um, not exactly uh, scrupulous in terms of their sort of moral standards for how they're, how they're conducting their journalism. Before we go on, I just want to, I do want to push back a little bit, which is I do think that in terms of, you know, like thinking about it pragmatically in terms of what is the most impact, right? I did, I do think that the police killing thing is a little bit different in that that is such a final outcome, right? That it's yeah. not, it's not harassment is somebody's actually just shot to death. Right. And that we've seen it and that, the visuals of us seeing it uh, over and over and over again, because, you know, the only the only incidents that get any traction anymore are the ones that are on video. Right. Yeah. Or there's a there's footage of it or there's a photograph recording. Yeah. Um, Mike Brown, for example, if there was not the photo of him dead on the street for all those hours and, you know, the the same national protest doesn't happen. Philando Castillo, same thing. Video of him in the car. Um I think that is taking a just as pure like numbers wise, this is not the biggest issue mm -hmm. is not like I, I think that all the th questions that you were asking about harassment, about everything like that is encapsulated in that is still encapsulated in that critique of sure. policing. Right. That um, but that the way to present it is always through the worst possible outcome, which is what activists should do. And it's what pundits should do as in the media. But in terms of this particular thing right there's other iterations of this there's always been other other iterations of this true crime where a white woman is killed like by her husband or whatever like that yeah. i mean it's basically it was like television for many many years right 48 hours dateline. mystery for yeah. example dateline yeah. nbc like yeah. it's just all white women killed um and the podcast iteration of it is interesting to me because like it is the thing that has changed for it at least for me as a consumer of this stuff i don't really watch that much of it um you know true crime stuff i don't i don't know i just find it kind of boring mostly yeah, yeah. i is that there is now 
I think post uh, cereal, I think that what has happened is that there, because cereal obviously is the thing that exploded all this stuff yeah. out there, right? Um, to the podcast form, is that there's almost this narrate, like the narrator becomes the central part of it in the same way that Sarah Kane became the central part of cereal. And that even though that's not a critique that, um, that this op-ed makes. It's one that I found quite interesting because I remember there was, you know, it was, there was an episode of, there was like a three, after Serial came out, Reply All, which is like a Gimlet show. I don't know if it still exists, but they got sort of caught up in all of Gimlet's like uh, organizing labor issues. And I think maybe some of the people ended up resigning because they were, you know, whatever. But they, uh, there was a three-part episode where they're, this woman is investigating this, murder and the whole thing is like so hapless and that's kind of the show you know it's like well i don't know i started talking to this guy in prison in the same way that sarah canning is talking to a non in prison right and whereas sarah canning had all this background as a crime reporter baltimore sun reporter and i think did good reporting right this one was more just like well i don't know how i feel about this person i'm talking to a murderer he seems kind of cool you know did he actually do it and then at the end of like five hours or something like that the conclusion is oh i think he actually did it and that's why he's in jail it's like why did i go through all of that you know like why are you talking to the person these the the victims families and and going through all that if your conclusion in the end is not going to be an exoneration if yep. it's just going to be about your fucking neurosis about this th- cold case that you just dug up because you saw that cereal was doing well, like the incentives are so clear in that one. That's why I think I think about it all the time, you know, because yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. oh, this was actually like this person didn't care at all. Like yeah, yeah, this yeah. was just about a personal performance yeah, yeah. done and extracting out of this thing. And in the end, she didn't even care enough to give us a fucking conclusion. You know, it's just like, oh, I guess yeah. he did do it. It was like, oh, really? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, right. Like, no, you dude. think everyone in jail is is innocent? You know, like, what the <laughs> fuck are you like? What did we just go through that for? Um, and I that's a part of the true crime podcast part that bothers me. I think part of what it is is that podcasts have like gotten certain like aesthetic or artistic or like literary pretensions, you know, and so now they have like. I don't know. There's a genre of murder podcast that you just pointed to that like just doesn't resolve and it ends and you listen, listen to like 12 episodes, you know, I have a family in a couple different States that are pretty far away. So I end up listening to like a lot of murder podcasts in the car with my wife and half <laughs> of them are just like, Oh yeah, I don't, we're not sure. Maybe they did it, but maybe they didn't. And it's, it's almost like it's, you know, they've been acculturated to think that that's like what sophistication is. Cause they've like read some novels and they think that like, Oh, we need ambiguity, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's like all well and good when it's, I don't know, like about something that has lower stakes, but whenever you're interviewing the families of people and you're talking about a murder and particularly, I mean, these are so often set in, very small towns or communities, which is part of the allure, you know, and you're turning over every stone and, you know, talking to everyone who was traumatized by the death of of some poor person, um, just so that you can have some sort of narcissistic, literary adjacent meditation on truth and, and crime and what justice means and blah, 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 that reaches no conclusion that exonerates nobody, uh, just seems violently pretentious with an emphasis on violent you know know. yeah Uh, yeah yeah like i I think that's part of it i think there's like a a storytelling piece that has become 
as podcasting has been taken more seriously as a quote unquote art form, I think the storytelling and the writerly and the sort of narrative elements get played up. But yeah, when that's about a murder or an abduction or whatever, that's pretty gross, you know? Yeah, I, I wonder where that came from. It is interesting. I mean, I think a lot of it came from serial, right? But was there yeah. like a, is there a, where the person who, where the podcaster basically is playing Poirot, right? They're playing yeah, the yeah. detective and yet they don't solve, the, <laughs> they don't solve the crime. <laughs> and then if it's about a bumbling detective who is going to sort of reveal, a, you know, truth of the world or something like that, or some sort of person who is kind of going through some process of finding a truth and in the end, they find a separate truth, right? Like that never, like that separate truth has to be quite profound. And the yeah, problem yeah. that I have with these podcasts is that for the most part, the separate truth that they find is not profound at all, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like literally yeah. just them talking and saying words. Do you but listen like, to podcasts? I mean, other than- I do, but I, you know, like it's, you know, we have a podcast critic at the New Yorker, Sarah Larson, who is, I think is oh, cool. wonderful, you know, um, and she's been doing it for a long time now. And I think she got, it was a great lane for, for Sarah to sort of occupy, which was that this new media was coming out and that nobody was writing any, anything, any criticism of it, right? Not, and yeah, I'm not yeah, talking yeah. about like bashing it. I'm just saying like, you know, yeah, trying yeah, to like, figure out what it was in a yeah. literary sense. And I think Sarah's work on it is quite awesome. awesome um, and, uh, but I, I do listen to a lot of podcasts and my general thing is that when it seems like the market is so overwhelming for a while, a whole bunch of, you know, the era of low interest rates and every my, people needing to shove, shovel money into some new media and enterprise, right? There are all these new podcast companies that started um, and their idea was to do big reported pieces, right? Big, big, expensive, million-dollar, seven-figure budget type of shows oh, wow. that were about something, right? And that that moment has absolutely passed, right? Like, mm -hmm. we're not going to get much more of those anymore. We will get them from places that are very established, like This American Life, for example, or Serial yeah, will yeah. keep doing them. But nobody else is going to be doing them because the money's not there. Um and so then I think that what basically we're going to have is that we're going to have basically a four-year period where podcasts were trying to be big journalistic enterprises that had literary value to them. And that's going to be basically it, right? It's yeah, going to yeah. be one period of time. And in, obviously in literature, this happens all the time, right? The market yeah. dictates something like that. Like, I don't know. And it, it can be totally macro in terms of like actual form or it can be miniature. Like when I was in graduate school, everyone started writing books about fucking genius children and it annoyed the shit out of me right and like that <laughs> like, it's like a mini trend yeah I like i can't write why would i write a book about a genius child who's <laughs> speaking in first person right. so that i can like kind of like do this like whimsical bartleme type of voice like i it's just awful i don't want to, i don't want to do that you know like i i feel like the or like um you know like I can kind of make up a voice, but all that obviously is inspired by like, I don't know, like whatever, like Jonathan Seffern Fowler or something like that. Right. Like the, his first book was a huge hit. And then 
Um, you had a bunch of people writing about genius children after that. Actually, um, my uh, favorite Stephen in this Cohen. iteration is uh, Olaf Stapleton in like the 1930s, who's a sci-fi writer, wrote a book about like a genius dog. I think it was called it was called either Odd John or Serious. I think it's Serious. Um, it yeah, it's like this like same kind of thing. It's like a child prodigy like dog. But anyway, it sounds better than that like micro genre you described. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Is it good? Is it good? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ol- oh, yeah. Olaf Stapleton was a genius. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Is the book about? Is the book narrated by? A dog yeah yeah like, it's like about this dog he's like a he's like a genius yeah it's it's great no it's, wait, is it is it, really is, it is it a first person novel like is it oh uh, yeah is i haven't it... read it in like a couple years let me look uh it's serious yeah i think it's serious yeah um oh, but uh, as in s-i-r-i-u-s but yeah it's yeah, the point yeah, of view yeah. of a dog but anyway they're just stealing from olaf stapleton but doing it with, with <laughs> Man, the baby, look, I guess. is there anything about it that is interesting to you from a formal standpoint yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, some podcasts like in that golden age of podcasts you mentioned that were like more heavily produced and had kind of like artistic qualities to them. I mean, they're almost like radio plays of a bygone era, you know, um, where they are scripted and they're sort of audio. I mean, one of the things that I think is cool about them is that I feel like there's such a kind of uh, tyranny of the image that we live in, you know, um, where, you know, everything is Instagram and image based and sensationalized and TikTok and video. And I think there is something um, sort of nostalgic and satisfying about this medium that is basically like a version of radio. And it's different from radio in important ways. And it's, you know, generally not live and so on. Um, But I think it is really interesting that its um, voice is able to capture people's attention um, and, and just conversation uh, in a way that I think before the rise of the podcast, I would have assumed was kind of a relic from a bygone era. I thought the pinnacle of that era of podcasting was S-Town, which was made by the same people who made Serial. And it was, <laughs> I thought that was incredible. I mean, in terms of the writing of it um, and the way in which it was told, it was it was masterful in a way that I felt was impressed at least impressed the shit out of me right in a way that i think that uh a lot of like if it had been written in a magazine piece in the same way it would have been much diminished right and so it was a period where they used the medium to actually enhance the end product um but now it's like i don't know now the podcasting is just so much geared towards people talking right Mm -hmm. um that's the type of podcast I enjoy. That's why this podcast is the way it is. Uh, and I don't know. I, I find that it is better, I think, than Twitter. And I think it's much better than a lot of other forms of current media. Because, look, I I, the, I talked to some a number of young people who are mildly red-pilled or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And they all listen to Lex Friedman. They listen to yeah. Joe Rogan. And for them, that's their equivalent of reading a book, right? They're like, it's yeah. amazing that these conversations take place for two and a half hours. And by the end, I feel like I'm educated about things and that I understand things better. And you can quibble with the, you know, maybe quibble, you can like directly argue against the guests and the people and the conversations that are taking place. But I don't think that you can say that those people are lying and just constantly titillated by like, you know, like, uh, nasty politics or something like that and that's what they resolved i think they're literally i think they're telling the truth about that and i think that formally in terms of that like that's been that's sort of where podcasts are going now and obviously it's always because there's some market leader that pushes everything in one direction or the other at the beginning uh it was serial for a while right 
And now it's Joe Rogan. And every podcast is just going to be Joe Rogan. And so I do think that at some level, these true crime podcasts will go away. Right. But the one thing about them that makes me not think that is that they're not very expensive to make because you just have to fucking have Wikipedia and a phone. Right. And then you can make them. Um, But yeah. Anyway, I hope that uh, I hope that uh, that this author, Annie Nichols, time is a little bit easier and people stop fucking calling her to make bullshit podcasts and re-traumatizing her over and over again, you know? Um, yeah, no, totally. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I agree with your point about um, why people turn to those kind of, like the red people I know that turn to those kind of podcasts. I think, you know, one of my biggest frustrations is um, there's a constant push on the left. And we've talked about this before, but just to not take people on the right at face value. And I understand why that is, but there's always like, oh, well, people listen to Joe Rogan for the misogyny. And it's like, well, I'm sure like there's a certain kind of listener for whom that's true. But I also think a lot of people are excited about ideas and just like want to hear people debate stuff, you know? And I think, um, I do think we live in a moment, people often say America's anti-intellectual and I don't, there's ways in which that's true, but I think there, we live in a moment where there's actually a great, uh, really renewed passion for ideas and discourse. And I think what we're struggling for is like what form that's going to take. It's clearly not the novel right now. And it, it doesn't seem to be, um, you know, nonfiction either. I mean, the long form essays thrive,ing podcasts are thriving. You know, I, I do feel like people are more interested in ideas than um, at any other moment, at least, than I've been alive. And I think it's it's the question of what what genre is going to be the yeah, the, it's a, yeah, yeah dominant the, okay. form of the twenty first century. You know, right. So if you believe that there are incubation spaces in that type of discussion, right, then if you look at the healthiest ecosystem of ideas that permeate out, or it's not something that you would necessarily want if you're progressive or on the left, but it is certainly Silicon Valley and this, uh, you know, you have this sort of tentpole of Slate Star Codex, Scott Alexander, and then you have all these assembled substacks, right? And then you have a far right version of it, which is centered around Peter Thiel um, and a lot of race science bullshit that that mm-hmm. you point out that is in a, behind a lot of this stuff like Hanania, but that within Silicon Valley, within that kind of like libertarian all in podcast, right? Like David Sachs, like, you know, mm-hmm. that's sort of the left friendly version of it, if you can believe it. But like, you know, within that idea space where these things are that influence Sam Bankman fried for example, that's a very mature and developed idea ecosystem where ideas get struck out very quickly and it's all through Substack, it's all through podcasts right um and it's all through youtube that's how they all do it um and i wonder if that's sort of you know a model of how things are gonna go down the line uh you know within the left obviously we have very developed podcast space as well let's start you know the most famous example being chapo or you know um things that have been very successful but I think that in terms of turning them into any type of actionable thing, it's because our side doesn't really have any money, you know, yeah, behind it. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like the right, you know, Peter Thiel can fund anything, right? It's not that the ideas are better or like more, uh, that the vehicle is better. So yeah, um, I don't know. I, I think that podcasts are going to be part of that in a way that I think I'm sad to say that I don't think writing will be right. Like I, I agree. Think, yeah, oh, I think that's right. That's why I do this podcast. <laughs> Preparing for <laughs> the head. future. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, thanks Pirate for coming Pirate. on. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so uh, for everybody, yeah, I, Tyler, you'll be back next week. 
Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, and we are, if you'd like to contribute to the show, it is $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com or for $5 a month at patreon.com slash TTSG. One day.